Take a seat and welcome to you all. If you're visiting, special welcome today and we hope that you'll stay behind, have tea and coffee with us afterwards, chance to get to know you. And we're continuing our series today on the book of Revelation. We're up to chapter 4, so please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 and please follow along as we, as we study this chapter together. Well, I'm told that the symptoms of fear are shortness of breath, racing heart, clammy hands, exactly the feeling I have when my parking meter is five minutes over in the city of Hobart, or when I see someone on TV getting a needle. Is anyone else like that? I, my, my palms start going wet. I remember when Hudson was two and I had parked the car and I was on the other side of the road and I thought he was strapped in the car and I turned around and he was running across the road to me. I didn't know. And I, that, that fear, the, the heart racing, awful, awful feeling. What are the things that we fear these days? We look to the world, we see climate change and poverty, famine, war, we look at our society, we see the collapse of marriage and family and all the, the suffering that that brings, especially to women and children. We look at our own lives, we worry about not having enough money, we might be getting sick, our bodies falling apart, relationships under strain. And these things can cause us to fear. And for our kids, even going to school can be frightening. And going online, and who knows what someone might say to them. Many fears around us. And fear can be like a, a black cloud over us. It creates anxiety. It robs us of sleep. It spoils everything. And fear almost always makes us behave badly. It makes us angry. Max, who's our, our dog or our cat or whatever he is at home, <laughs> whenever someone strange comes to the door, he begins to bark and his hair goes up on the back of his neck and he starts growling. Why? Why does he act like he's so angry? It's because he's, he's frightened. He doesn't know who's, who's coming to the door. And fear can make us insular, withdraw into ourselves, it can make us selfish, it can make us complaining. Fear can make us try to find comfort in our sin. And fear, in most cases, is sin. It corrodes our faith like acid, and fear, unchecked, will lead us to give up our faith altogether. Now, as we've seen, the first Christians had many reasons to fear and we've looked at these seven churches in Asia Minor and we've seen that Christians there feared for their livelihood, they feared for the safety of their family and when Roman persecution came they feared for their liberty and even for their lives. And so the first readers of the book of Revelation had a lot to be frightened about, humanly speaking, as they looked around them and as they saw 
the, the, these pressures and these dangers coming in on them, many things that caused them to be anxious and afraid. This book was written to people who were very, very tempted to be frightened, people tempted to disintegrate into fear. And this morning we see that God came to them in their fear and he showed them something. He showed them something marvellous, something remarkable, something that you would never see with, with your human eyes or hear with your human ears. God came to them in their fear and he showed them the throne room of heaven. And in our fear, or the things that we might be tempted to fear, let us look at what God showed them. He showed them this to lift their fears. And our fears will be lifted if we see what God was showing them. And if we read this with those listening ears that our Lord Jesus says that we must have. And so let me pray and let's look at this together. Lord Jesus, give us listening ears this morning. Open our eyes to see what you're showing us. Unblock our ears to hear your voice. Soften our hearts to receive what you're saying to us today. We pray in your name. Amen. And so John says... After this, after receiving these seven letters that we've been looking at over the last seven weeks, after this, I looked and, in the original, behold. I wish the NIV hadn't taken that out. I think it's retained in, in some other versions, some of the older versions. After this, I looked and, behold, look. There before me was a door standing open in heaven. And so here, to these frightened people or people who are tempted to be afraid, a door opens, a door opens into heaven. Imagine that, an open door into heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, now who, who was it who spoke to John with the voice of a trumpet in chapter 1? It's Jesus himself. Come up here. Last week we heard Jesus saying to Zacchaeus, come down here. But now, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So are you ready? Are you ready? The, the, there's a, an open door to heaven right now. And Jesus is saying to me and to you, come up, come up and look Look into heaven. You're frightened of many things. But come and see. Come and see what's going on in heaven. Come and see what's happening behind the scenes. And at once I was in the spirit because the things that are seen here can only be seen in the spirit with spiritual eyes and ears and understanding. At once I was in the spirit and behold in the original. Behold again, look, 
And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So the first thing John sees in heaven is a throne. A throne is a place of rule. A throne is a place where things are governed, where justice is administered. There's a throne in heaven and someone is sitting on the throne. In other words, someone is in charge. You're worried, you're anxious, you don't know what's coming around the corner, you don't know what the future holds, but someone is sitting on the throne, someone is in charge, someone is directing things. It's not chaos. It might look like chaos. It might feel like chaos, but it is not, because there is someone sitting on the throne. Someone is, in, is ruling this. And what's this person like? And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. The appearance of jasper and ruby. So th this is not saying that the one on the throne, that, that, that if, if we could physically look into heaven right now, that we would see God as jasper and ruby. No, this is symbolic language. In fact, literally it is, he was like the appearance of jasper and ruby. Now, what, what is this telling us? What is this telling us about the one on the throne? Well, if there's a, a pile of rocks in front of you and there's a gemstone in the middle, a jasper or a ruby, it stands out immediately. It's clear, it's rare, it's precious, it's durable, it's valuable, it's beautiful. The one on the throne is, is all of these things. He's like a gemstone, says John. Rare, beautiful, precious, wonderful. And a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now, what's the rainbow? Well, we remember from our series... Genesis 6 to 9, earlier this year, we looked at the rainbow, didn't we? We saw that the, the rainbow was God's gift to the world. A sign of what? It's a sign of his grace and his mercy. After God flooded the world in that, that catastrophic flood and destroyed all human life because of our sin and rebellion. After the flood... God said, never again will I flood the earth. And he gave a rainbow as a sign and a pledge of that. And so the rainbow is, is to be, whenever we see the rainbow, we are to be reminded of God's grace and his patience and his mercy. And this is telling us that God's rule is, is encircled by the rainbow, an emerald rainbow, as it, as it, as it says here. In other words, his rule is grounded in mercy and grace. The God who rules this universe is a gracious God, a kind God, a merciful God. And that, that's why his, his throne is surrounded by this, this sign of his mercy. And then going outward, surrounding the throne, were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. 
And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Who are these chaps? Who are these elders on these, these 24 thronelets? These little thrones around the big throne. The 12 patriarchs of Israel and the 12 apostles of the New Testament, the New Covenant. These are representatives of God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are representatives of all God's people. In other words, these are our representatives. There's a sense in which they are us around the throne. The elders representing us around the throne, dressed in white, the righteousness of Jesus, crowns of gold on their head. These are victory crowns. And we'll return to those crowns a little later in this passage. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And what's this telling us? These are symbols of power. Symbols of power. That the one seated on the throne is a powerful God. And lightning, rumbling, like an earthquake, peals of thunder. We know, don't we, that the most, apparently the strongest human structures and defences can be overwhelmed in a moment by a flood or brought to dust by an earthquake. The tallest, strongest buildings on earth can be brought low in a moment by the power of nature. And here we see that the one on the throne exudes power. And that's the symbolism of the lightning and the thunder and the rumbling. And this is so good, isn't it? This is so important that we know this. Because we've already seen that the one on the throne is a loving God and a merciful God and a gracious God. But a God on the throne who loved us and was merciful to us but did not have power. He would want to help us, but he'd not be able to. He's not powerful. But then think of a God who was just power and just might. He might be able to help us, but he wouldn't want to help us because he's not a loving God. He's not a merciful God. And so we see the one on the throne. Mercy and power joined together. He's the God who wants to help us. He's the God who can help us. Mercy and grace and power united in the one on the throne. And in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. And we've seen those seven lamps and we've seen that they they represent the church. Seven being the number of completeness and perfection. And we've seen that these are symbols of the church Yet, here we read that these are the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God. Seven, perfection, completion, is the Holy Spirit. And so here we see the church filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Comforter, the Spirit of Christ, right 
in front of God, right under his gaze, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit-filled church. We shouldn't be surprised that, that, that some of the, the metaphors and, and symbols of the book of Revelation develop as the book unfolds. This happens time and again. And so we, here we see that development of that, that original idea of the seven lamps. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now what's that about? What's, what's the sea of glass around the throne? When we look at a, a similar throne room scene in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, we see that same thing, that, that sea of glass in front of the throne. But it's named, and it's named in the Hebrew language, rakia. It's a rakia. Now, what's, what, what's that word mean? It's, it's the word that's often translated firmament. It's what God made on the second day. God separated the waters above from the waters below. He made a firmament to separate those waters. And in the book of Ezekiel, the firmament is represented by that, that sea of glass. And that's what it is here. And this is telling us, this is teaching us, that God is not a part of his creation. And that, that, that's pantheism. That's the essence of pantheism. Pantheism, pantheism says that the trees are God, and God is the trees, and God is the mountain, and God is the, the flock of wildebeest, and God is the river, and God is the ocean, and these things are God. God is a part of, he's integral to creation. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach pantheism. It teaches that God is transcendent, that he is not creation, he is the creator. He made all things. And he stands above creation. Now, there's another false view that's called deism. And deism says that God is separate from creation and couldn't care less about it. That he made the world and kind of wound it up like a clock and let it go and, and left it to its own devices. So he's separate, but he's also careless about the thing that he's made. But the Bible doesn't teach either of those things. The Bible says that God made all things, yet he is transcendent. He stands above all things. And that's so important to know, isn't it? That's so important to know as we face the future, as we face so many unknowns, as we face possible dangers, threats to us, threats to our faith, threats to our children. We need to know that God transcends creation. I remember years ago being in a gorge in Kalbarri in, in, in Western Australia and I was swimming in this gorge and, and went under a little waterfall. It wasn't a big one, just a little one, but I was surprised by the power of the water coming down on me. And for a split second, you know how fast the mind works, for a split second, I felt a sense of panic, just that, that, that weight of water pressing on you and you think, you think you're going to drown. And so I reached out my hand. My father was standing right there. 
and he took my hand and, and, and took me out of the water in a moment. It all happened in a split second. But it reminds me that you can only, if you're drowning, you can only be helped by someone who is not themselves drowning. They need to be standing on the rock, don't they? They, they need to be standing on the solid ground. Then they can help you. And this is what Jesus is showing us about heaven, that God is transcendent. He stands above creation. He's on the rock. He can reach down and help us, you see. He's not swimming in it himself, drowning in this mess himself. He can help us. He wants to help us. He's got the power to help us. He loves us. Full of grace and mercy. What a tremendous scene. And in the centre, around the throne, and this is where it if you didn't think it was strange already, this is where it starts to get quite strange. Four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. That's weird. Covered with eyes. It's repeated, actually, so it's important. What's this telling us? It's telling us that whoever these creatures are, they see everything. They see it all. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle, and each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And it's been suggested that the lion represents the most powerful of the, the wild animals, and the ox is the most powerful of the domestic animals. The ox serves with its great strength. And the eagle is the swiftest of animals. In fact, in the Old Testament, the eagle often symbolizes the, the swift judgment of God. And then the man, the human being, the image bearer of God, God made us, male and female, in his image. And so here we see a representative of the pinnacle of creation, a human face. And so we have these representatives of God's creation, these fantastic beings with their six wings covered in eyes at the four points around the throne, surrounding the throne of God. And what are they doing? Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Where have we heard that before? It's the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah, given that, that vision of God's throne room, and that wonderful repetition, let's remind ourselves that in the Hebrew Old Testament, there's no underlining. You couldn't make words into a bold font when they were writing on, on parchment. There's no uh, exclamation marks. There's no punctuation at all, in fact, in the Hebrew Old Testament in its original form. And so how did, how did one emphasize something? When, when you're a, an Old Testament prophet writing in Hebrew 
and you couldn't make the bold font or the underline or the exclamation marks. What did you do to emphasize you used repetition? And that's why in, in Genesis 14, when Moses wants to talk about the pits that the king's chariots got stuck in, that these were no ordinary pits. These were deep pits. And so in the original language, they are called pit pits. <laughs> pit pits. The chariots got stuck in pit pits. And the King James translates that as slimy pits. You know, and when Jesus really wanted to emphasize something, in every word of Jesus is infinitely precious. But from time to time, he would preface what he was about to say to draw special attention to it, and he would say what? Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, the repetition, you see, gets our attention. He's emphasising something. What did Paul say to the Galatians? If I or, or, any, or even an angel from heaven comes to preach a gospel different to the one I've preached, let them be anathema, he says. What does he do then? If anyone comes and preaches a gospel other than the one that you have received, let them be anathema. He repeats that. It's emphatic. And here, those extraordinary creatures, representatives of creation, all around the throne of God, look upon the one on the throne and say, not that he is holy, and not that he is holy, holy, but the one on the throne is holy, 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 infinitely holy, holy above all other things. And so the first readers of this book who attempted to fear the persecution and the trouble on their doorstep, and they had seen friends dragged away and prosecuted and many put to death. And they were looking to the future with a sense of fear. And Jesus says, come and look into heaven. Come and see. Look through the door. And look at the one on the throne. He is holy, holy, holy. He will not let anything happen in his creation that does not lead to his good and wonderful purposes being carried out. Everything is tending to a good and perfect end. No matter how chaotic and painful it, it seems and feels right now, it is going to a good, according to a good plan and design. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you 
created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. A couple of things here. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're, you're listening to this as, well, this is for the Christians. This is a Christian writing for Christian people. Well, this says here, we are being, our attention here is being drawn to the one who created us all, whether you're a Christian or not. This person we are looking at on the throne created you by, your, by his will, you were created. And you have your life and being in him. You can only breathe because he gives you breath. Your heart only continues to beat because he makes it beat. You have your life and being in him. And so do, do we see what's going on here? Here's a church, the, their heads were down and they were frightened and, and fearful and anxious and falling into sin and forgetting their repentance and tempted to, to give up the Christian faith. And Jesus says, look, just look into heaven and see the one seated on the throne. And those four living creatures who see everything, who know everything, and what they see and know causes them to, to praise the one on the throne day and night. It's as though they are calling us, the 24 elders, our representatives, calling us to join in with the chorus of praise. And instead of to have our heads down in fear, to lift up our heads with confidence and joy and to praise he who is on the throne, and to take those crowns. And my NIV says what? It says, they laid their crowns before the throne. It's such a lame translation because it says they threw their crowns before the throne. They cast their crowns. There's energy to that. How can I wear a throne when I'm seeing he, he who is seated on... How can I wear a crown when I see he who is on the throne? and they throw their crowns down. You are the one who has all glory and honour and power. And this is what Christ is calling us to do this morning with this vision of heaven. There was a, a meeting of Christians back in 1939. Were you there, John, by any chance? <laughs> I didn't plan to to say that, but I couldn't, I just thought you caught my eye, and Rex is right behind you, maybe they're together, so <laughs> I won't pick on anyone else. But there was a meeting of Christians in, in 1939, and there they were, gathered in a church hall, I presume, and they were shown pictures, terrifying pictures, Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, Tojo, Emperor Hirohoto and Joseph Stalin. And there was a voice that came with these pictures. In the hands of these five men rests the destiny of the world. Terrifying stuff. And Christians looking at Joseph Stalin and Hitler and Mussolini and Tojo. Oh, the destiny of the world. 
rests in the hands of these men, these evil men. Well, those guys are long gone. They're long gone. They, they're, they're dead and dust. You know, I, I grew up, I was a teenager in the 80s, and I thought the world was ruled by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and Bob Hawke. Gorbachev, they're long gone. I think Gorbachev's still alive. But their influence is long gone. That's just the 80s. Long gone. And so why be transfixed by these people who just come and, and who go? And, and, and why be filled with fear as we look at world leaders today? Boris. Donald, Xi, Kim, we might be tempted to fear. They'll be gone soon enough, don't you worry. Just like all the others, they'll come and go. But there's one seated on the throne who does not come and go. And he's always been there and he always will be there and he is a gracious, merciful and holy God and he is a mighty God. And your future is in his hands, not in the hands of these men and women in our newspapers. And we, we might look at war, climate, money, health, relationships, and we might think in the hands of these things rests the destiny of my world. It doesn't doesn't. It's in the hands of him who was on the throne. Gaze at the one on the throne who was and is and is to come and see his power, grace, eternity, transcendence and holiness. And all of these things will soon take their proper perspective. J.I. Packer, what's J.I. Packer's best book? He wrote a lot of good books, but what's his best book? It's Knowing God. And you've got to read the Bible and you've got to read Knowing God. It's such a wonderful book. And this is what Packer says about knowing God. It's, it's a book of theology. He says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. I love that, and it's entirely true that when you know God, when you know the one seated on the throne and you know his power, his grace, his love, his eternity, his wisdom, his beauty, his holiness, most of life's problems will fall into place of their own accord. No Christian ignores the problems of life but no Christian is enthralled by them either. We're enthralled by the one on the throne. One more thing before I finish this morning. One more thing. The one on the throne is described as jasper and ruby. And these, are, these gems are red. Jasper is typically red. Ruby is red. And what we're going to see next week in chapter 5, and I, I hope you'll come back and, and see this, this unfolding picture 
of the throne room of God, we're going to see that he is red because he's covered in blood. And it's his own blood we're going to see shed for, for our sin. And Paul tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so the one on the throne is all those things we've talked about. But he's also the God who gave his life for us, for our sins, the God of mercy, so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life and forgiveness in him. And so in all your fears, brothers and sisters, look to him on the throne, Jasper, Ruby, he's red, and remember his blood and know that he, he loves you. He's wise, powerful, precious, beautiful, magnificent, eternal, holy, and he loves you. The one on the throne loves you. Let that sweep away your fears, or at the very least, put them in their proper place and perspective. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, this morning you've, you've shown us yourself on the throne. Our mighty creator and king and ruler. Lord Jesus, we confess that too often our eyes are stuck to the ground or stuck in the newspapers. We confess our fear and we repent of it. We repent of our fear and we look to you with joy, confidence. And Father, just as you have loved us, I pray that we might turn from this to love, to love one another as you've loved us. And we pray that this love will spill over, will overflow the walls of this church into the community to our city, into our nation. May we be a loving people as you are our loving and gracious God. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, our musicians have chosen a, a wonderful song to finish, which really focuses our attention on, on God and his wonderful attributes, immortal, invisible, God only wise. So let's stand and sing this together with all our heart and encourage each other with the words of this song. <laughs>